beginning Mark chapter 2, verses 23. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 to 28. And the title of this morning's message is Love Like Jesus. Love Like Jesus. And so I'd like to read it to you this morning. I'm reading from the New Living Translation this morning. And here's what it says. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And he answered, have you never read what David did when he, and this is King David. This is the David that knocked out the the giant Goliath. Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for a priest to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man. Not man for the Sabbath. So observe what it says there. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people. The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people. And not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. Can we read that one more time? Because I think it's really powerful. Then Jesus said to them, The Sabbath was made to meet the needs of people and not people to meet the requirements of the Sabbath. And verse 28 continues on and says, so the Son of Man is Lord even over the Sabbath. Who's the Son of Man? Son of Man is Jesus. It's a title that he liked to use. It's actually an Old Testament title. But it's a title that he'd like to use. It meant literally, what it would have meant is this. He is the God of his people. He is the God who understands, who has compassion. He is the God who can literally identify with his people. So let's pray. Father, illuminate your word this morning. Speak to us strongly and boldly this morning as your word is carried forth throughout this place. In Jesus' name, amen title of this morning's message, again, is Love Like Jesus. Jesus brings up an interesting story as the Pharisees begin to approach him, and they say, hey, dude, why are you doing this? Why are you going out into the fields and picking those grains of sands on the Sabbath? If you know anything about Jews and the Sabbath, the Sabbath was a very holy day for them. I just decided yesterday, yesterday we, uh, we did actually a, a few great things, um, Yesterday we um, took my mom out to breakfast, so I went to upstate New York. And uh, if you know anything about upstate New York, there is a whole community of Hasidic Jews, okay? And uh, be careful when you're entering their communities on the day of the Sabbath. Those folks, they have a community called Kairos Joel that's there. And, uh, And they're only allowed to walk a certain amount of steps on the Sabbath, They're not allowed to do any work on the Sabbath. Uh, I grew up in New York City. I was born in a hospital called Beth Israel. 
in New York City. It is a Jewish hospital. And if you go to New York City at any Jewish hospital on the Sabbath, meaning from sundown on Friday night, okay, to sundown on uh, Saturday, okay, you will see that they have something called the Sabbath elevators. Why? Because Jews are so restricted on the Sabbath by what they can do or what they think they can do that they can't even press a button to take to either request the elevator or to request the floor that they would go on. And so there's these specific type of elevators. They're called Sabbath elevators. They come in and they literally stop at every single floor because they believe that they're honoring God in doing so. So the Sabbath is a very strict thing. So these Pharisees are, Jesus, why are you, who do you think you are? That you can do what you're doing on this holy day. You shouldn't be doing anything at all. I think the idea is, is that the Pharisees probably would have preferred that Jesus and his disciples would have starved than to have picked grain just because of the day of the week that it was. So Jesus mentions a story back to them. He says, don't you remember in the Old Testament the story of King David? When he ate the consecrated bread. So the consecrated bread actually consisted of 12 loaves placed on a golden table outside the most holy place in what was then known as the tent of meeting in the Old Testament. It was a special offering to God and it was set out fresh. They would bake it fresh every Sabbath. And it was only to be eaten by the priests and his sons. Nevertheless... In the absence of any food that was available, David and his men ate it. That story is found in 1 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 6. And Jesus cited this incident as an example of how rules, even God-given ones, are not intended to take precedence over human need. Let me repeat that again. Jesus speaks to us something boldly about how rules, even God-given ones, are not intended to take precedence over human need. In this way, Jesus tells us something important about divine rules. God made them, and he made them to serve humans, not to rule humans. And in Jesus, God shows us The core of authentic human life is love. The person who loves, the Apostle Paul wrote, fulfills the law. We could say that the only reason the law of God exists is to point us toward the life of love. To love is to enter into the divine fellowship of the Holy Spirit. To dwell in the eternal love of the Father for the Son and of the Son for the Father. All this to say here, here's what really Jesus is getting at. People are more important than systems and programs. Let me repeat that. People. I'm not here to give you Sunday school. I'm not here to, to give you life group ministry. I'm not here to give kids ministry to the kids. We don't exist as a church for those programs. Those programs are just vehicles that help us to love people. 
And the day that those programs stop being useful towards the end of loving people or they cease to be effective towards the end of loving people, then we'll switch it. Many churches still find that Sunday school works for them. Well, amen. Praise God for that. That works in their context. We choose to go a different route in the way that we do discipleship. The end goal is to disciple people. Sunday school was a vehicle. Life groups are another vehicle. And maybe one day that won't work either. And we'll have to change and switch to something else that will reach the incoming generation. See, the idea here that Jesus is trying to speak to is people are more important than rituals and religion. John wrote that if a person loves God, that person will always, always love his brother. William Barclay wrote this, and I quote, the best way to worship God is to help men. Let me repeat that. The best way to worship God is to help men, and by men we mean humankind. The most expressive way that you can show the love of Christ to somebody is by being there in their good times, in their bad times, when they're messing up, when they're on top of the world. That is the best way to show the love of God. And it might be easy to think that loving God and loving one's neighbor are two different things. The reality is that they're not. Our love for God is expressed precisely in how we treat others. If we are mean, hateful, cruel, and inconsiderate of others, that's really a demonstration of how devoted we are or not devoted we are to God. God loves people, even the ones that we have no use for, the ones that we treat as though they don't matter. When we behave poorly toward the people that God loves, then we are behaving that same way towards God. God is interested in people, not in rituals for ritual's sake. Let me just briefly kind of give you a glimpse uh, into this. When we treat people like they don't matter, it's a genuine reflection of high relationship with God. In fact, there's a reason. Communion is a ritual, isn't it? It is a tradition. It is a biblical mandate. But there's a reason that on all of these biblical mandates, it says before you partake of this, before you take place in communion, you need to make sure that your heart is right with your brother. As a matter of fact, you know what the Bible says about giving offerings? The Bible says, hey, keep your tithe and offerings to yourself. If you think that you're going to come here and give a gift of worship unto God and your heart is wrong with your brother or sister, how about you get that right first before you come here and express your devotion to God? That's how serious God takes our relationships with people. And when it comes to the Sabbath, an idea has gotten around that the Sabbath is greater than God. Let me explain. It is as though God is the guardian or the protector of the Sabbath, making sure that people keep the Sabbath holy. And finally awarding only those who are faithful Sabbath peepers. In other words, in this kind of thinking, the main thing was the Sabbath. 
God is the enforcer of the Sabbath. God made the Sabbath, then made himself subject to it, and then made people subject to it. Here what Jesus does is he clears all the convoluted recipes off the dinner table, and he makes things very plain. People were not made to be servants of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made to be the servant of the people. Jesus wasn't talking to or about all people. What he was talking to is those first century Jewish teachers of the law. And he was talking about Israel, the specific humans to whom God had given the Sabbath. Let me share with you something. How many of you have been taught in Sunday school that one of the commandments is to keep the Sabbath holy? And you better keep that commandment, right? Let me just talk to you about how Jesus did this. Guess what? You're breaking the Sabbath right now. Did you know that? You're not here on a Saturday. You're here on a Sunday worshiping Jesus. Why? Because Jesus switches the paradigm. And he says it's not about a day. It's about a person. That person is Jesus. And it's all about that person. So it doesn't matter if you couldn't make it to church on a Sunday. If you felt like worshiping here on a Wednesday night, hey, that's okay too. Or if there was service on a Tuesday night, you wanted to worship on a Tuesday night, well, amen, praise God. The day didn't matter anymore. These people were so focused on this one day that they had to hedge around, that they had to protect. And sometimes as Christians for so long, we have been taught the same thing. If you don't come to church on Sunday, then you're going to hell. Can I tell you that's not the case? Would I encourage you to do so? Absolutely. Do I think it's wise to do so? Yeah, I do. Why? Because traditionally speaking, this is probably one of the best places for you to receive at least an introductory word before you get to that next step and move on into a life group. Is it absolutely necessary to the Christian life to gather on a Sunday morning? Will you be sinning against God if you don't gather on a Sunday morning? The answer to that question is no. You wouldn't be. But the thing is, is I'd assure you that if you didn't gather in some way, shape, or form, somewhere, that you would definitely not be a mature Christian because there would be no avenue forward to engage in maturity. The Bible says that iron sharpens iron, and so one man sharpens another. The idea is humankind. Meaning we get together, we sharpen each other up. We grow when we get together. But there's this whole misunderstanding of the Sabbath here with these Pharisees. The gospel declares God's love. And it's interesting how carefully calculated step-by-step programs for evangelism seem to come and go. Much like the, the latest fads in business and management. Maybe one reason is that programs by nature are mechanisms. Do you know our children's ministry is a mechanism? We have a great kids ministry downstairs. I love it. It's incredible. Our Connections Cafe is a mechanism that we use to engage people. Why? Because Jesus met people at the wells. And our modern day wells are our coffee shops where people interact with each other here in America. But let's say... The culture in America switches. 
the culture outside switches. And the wells change just like the wells change from wells to coffee shops. What if America starts liking tea? Well, guess what? The Connections Cafe won't be much of a cafe anymore. It'll be the Connections Tea Shop because we're going to meet people where they're at, at the well that they're at. Guess what? If our children's ministry changes, let's say years ago, we didn't even have projectors in churches. I remember when we first, when I first started engaging in modern ministry, when I used to come to church, we used to have hymnals. And we used to sing from the hymnals. The hymnals are the little books with all the songs written in them. And that's how we used to do it. And then society upgraded. And then we got really cool. And we got screens. And somebody would come and they would take this little thing. Uh, I forget now what is even the name of the device. Uh, they, would take, they would take this clear sheet of plastic paper. They would write the words of the song or somebody would type up the words of the song. They would put it on this one device and all of a sudden, boom, the words that were written down on paper would reflect on the screen. Then we, There are the overhead projectors. There you go. Then we decided to switch it up and PowerPoint became the thing. And then we've gotten more advanced, and from PowerPoint and those still images, now we have moving images. One day we'll have holographics in the church where we won't even need any of this. It'll just be something that, that's not even just a little small device that you just press a button and it shows up. Here's the point. Those are all just vehicles that point the way to Jesus. They are not the thing. The thing is reaching people. The thing is... Our kids' ministry is not the end goal. The real end goal is discipling kids. Sunday school is not the end goal. Life groups are not the end goal. The real end goal is discipling adults and families and young people. The end goal when you gather here is for you to encounter Jesus. And whether churches do that with the hymnal, the overhead projector, the current projector or a holographic thing that's coming out in 2050, it'll all be the same thing. To disciple and to love people and to figure out ways that we can engage people where they are so that they can come to know Jesus. To get everything out of the way so that all they see is Christ and his love. You see... Mechanisms work well for business endeavors where advertising and manipulation of emotions is, is crucial to selling a product. But here the thing is, the gospel is not a product. The gospel is a declaration of God's love. And love doesn't come by programs. In fact, love is difficult. In fact, Love cannot be forced. It comes in its own way, in its own time. It is strengthened and proven in the crucible of self-sacrifice, in the crucible of patience and forbearance. It cannot be explained. Love can only be lived. And it's something you live out, not something you evaluate on a scale of measurable outcomes. It's messy. Love is not predictable. Why do you think churches get messy sometimes? Because love is messy. And whenever you have more than one person in one place, things get messy. 
Sometimes love hurts. Sometimes it thrills you and it excites you. But here's the thing about love. Love is never static. I love watching hospital shows. And uh, my wife, I I would help her study to be a nurse uh, when she was in nursing school. And uh, every year she has to go through a whole thing of recertification and education. And, uh, and so I was helping her out uh, study for an EKG um, exam that she had in class. Her brother was helping her out too. And, uh, and we were studying back and forth. And I remember she, she would say this term to me, asystole. You know what an asystole is? Maybe you know it by flatline. When someone flatlines. Love is not a flatline. Love is staticky. It has its ups and it has its downs. The thing is, is the commitment to stay there. I am convinced that Christians don't fall out of love with the churches that they engage in. That they don't fall out of love with their spouses. They fall out of like. Like is a feeling. Like is a sensation. Love is a commitment. It is a forbearance. It is a steadfastness. It is a steadiness to say in the ups and the downs, in the highs and the lows, in the valleys and in the mountaintops, I will be there. Love, as it relates to a Christian church, says, I don't care who the pastor of that church is. It's my church. I'm going to worship there. I don't care if Pastor Tom leaves tomorrow, if he stays tomorrow. I'm committed to the work of that church. I'm not committed to Pastor Tom. I, I love him. I like him. But I'm committed to this church. I love this church. My commitment will take me through. I may not like everything. That's okay. You don't have to like everything. But if you know our heart, our heart is to reach people. And we're doing everything we can towards that end. You see, love doesn't play by the rules because the rules can't keep up to love. The main reason most people come to church, and in fact keep coming to church, and the most reasons that people become believers is actually the same reason as it was 2,000 years ago. Did you know that? The structures have changed. The buildings have changed. The programs have changed. But here's the real reason why people have come and joined the church. They meet people who like them. They meet people who accept them and become their friends and show them the love of Jesus. You see, programs don't do it. They've always changed. Love is what does it. Relationship at the end of the day is what does it. And Jesus, in fact, gave a new command to his disciples. John chapter 13, verse 34 to 35. And a new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. It's actually quite a countercultural novel thought in our highly organized, programmatic society. Suppose this. Suppose Christians were well known for being the kind of people anybody would enjoy having for a friend. 
Suppose they weren't known for being pushy or judgmental. Suppose they weren't well-known for well-rehearsed emotional spiles designed to press people into a so-called decision for Christ. Suppose Christians were genuine, caring, harmless people who in the love of Christ love others for who they were. Suppose they didn't make friends with people as part of some new evangelism program in a church. I'm going to repeat that again. Suppose they didn't make friends with people as part of some new evangelism program in a church. But simply because faithful friendship was what Jesus is all about. Peter said we should be always ready to give an answer for the hope that lies within us. Paul said that we should let our conversation always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that we may know how to answer everyone. Here's the thing. Neither Peter nor Paul said we should press people to ask. Instead, we're told to live the life of love. We're to make no secret of our faith. Don't be secretive that you're a Christian. But neither are we asked to push it upon other people. The Holy Spirit moves people to ask. I found really genuine reliance on the Holy Spirit is absolutely incredible. Absolutely incredible. We think we need to push things. We think we need to push our agenda. And in God's time, and as a reflection of saying, hey, you know where you, you really push the boundaries on this? When your boss comes to you or a coworker comes to you and says, hey, would you mind doing this this way because it will get a different uh, uh, result and maybe a better result. And could we skew this because I'd like it to look. You, hey, I, I'm sorry. I'm a Christian. And I really don't feel comfortable doing that because it would go against my integrity. When people know that you're not a liar at your workplace, that you're saying you're here and you're really not, that you're saying you're doing this and you're really not, then they start to say you have integrity. And integrity is one of the pillars of a Christian life. When people start to look at you and see that you live different, that you talk to people different, that you're really actually like a joy to be around, not a dread to be around, that speaks something of the gospel in you. The Holy Spirit moves people to ask, and the Holy Spirit works in us to give an answer that is seasoned with salt and full of grace. Why do you live the way you do? Why don't you come out with, with, with the girls? Why don't you come out for a night on the town? Let's go out. Let's go have fun. Hey, I would love to if you, let's go out to a restaurant. Let's eat with each other. Let's share with each other. But I'm going to go home. I just, I have, I'm, I'm, I, I really believe that my life is an investment into my family's life. I don't feel like I'm doing it out of obligation. I feel like I really need to invest time with my husband and with my children. That speaks to somebody and says, 
Family is important for them. In a world where it's easy to just drop your kid off and forget about them. When you are able to be the distinction in the middle of that and say, I value some things. And those things were placed into me because I have a faith in Jesus. People will ask questions. Why? Because it's different from the norm of what people are seeing. Some people call this kind of living whole life evangelism or relational evangelism or or lifestyle evangelism. But by giving it a name, we run the risk of turning it into just another program. Imagine a young man walking up to another young woman outside of Dunkin' Donuts. Think about this for a second. Outside of Dunkin' Donuts, Dunkin' Donuts is our modern day well. Outside of Dunkin' Donuts, they're meeting up. And this young man comes up to this young woman and says, excuse me, hey, do, do you know me? Well, I, I know you, and I know you're miserable and pathetic and, and need a great husband, and I can fix all that if you'll just repeat after me these just three words, I will marry you, and we will live happily ever after. What do you think would happen if a guy went up to a woman and said that, hey, sweetheart, I know you. I know you're pathetic and and miserable where you're at in life, but I know you need a husband. (laughs) And I've got three words that will fix your life. Happily ever after. What do you think would happen? Uh, If if she was Puerto Rican, I say this because I'm Puerto Rican. The closest knife that was around. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) If she was any woman, she would smack him across the face, wouldn't she? She would slap him. And then she'd probably get on the phone and call 911. Or pepper spray him. You see, that's not how good relationships start, is it? Yet something like that is how some Christians have been taught that a good relationship with Jesus should begin. Thank God that God cleans up our message. He turns lemons into lemonade. What makes us think that that's how Jesus wants us to help people learn who he is for them? That's hard. I've always found this interesting. Everybody always talks about, hey, you can become the fastest growing church with three easy steps. And you can get it for $3.99 and we'll ship it to you. Teach it to your team. Five keys to successful relationships and church growth. Everything that you go into a store, you look at a book, you look at a program. Five keys to successful relationships in your marriage. Five keys to successful relationships to raising your kids. Here's the truth. It's a lot more messy than that. We have watered down the gospel to just saying one little prayer after a service. And then it's all said and done. Do you know, though? And I'm not opposed to that one prayer. That's not what I'm saying. But do you realize the depth of commitment that you're asking someone to make when they receive Jesus as their Savior? You're asking them to switch their whole mindset. You're asking them to give up everything that they have known, every segment of religion, everything that their parents may have taught them, may have invested into them. And in one three-word statement, 
we're asking them to give it all up, and we think that they will. Is it any wonder that we have so many people pray the prayer of salvation and then walk out of the door not saved? Serving Jesus and accepting him is easy. Learning the implications of what it means to serve Christ. That can be a little tough because it means rooting out some things. That's why these things best happen in relationships. It's why we push and will continue to work through our life groups in the church because we believe that I cannot fully relationally invest into a crowd of people that gather on a Sunday morning. We believe that your life group facilitator, your life group leader can invest into a group of 8 to 12 people where you guys can ask questions and interact with each other in deep ways week to week. Another word for what Jesus was confronting in this story is called legalism. Legalism is something that, in fact, is incompatible with the gospel. You see, Jesus Christ is who he is for us before we do anything. I'm going to repeat that. Jesus is who he is for us before we do anything. The gospel is the truth about the reconciliation God had already brought about through his son, Jesus. Jesus' work of reconciliation doesn't depend on us. If it did, we'd never be reconciled. For our faith and our behavior are always substandard at best. God did what he did in Christ because he loved us, not because we loved him first. That's why we can trust him for our salvation fully from beginning to end. That is why we don't have to carry the burden of fear that our ever-present weakness and faith or behavior is the crack in the hull that will sink our salvation. I used to think that. I grew up in a Pentecostal church. I was probably getting saved every week. Amen. Does, any, does anybody, can anybody hear that? You were getting saved every week because every time you would mess up, you believed you needed to come up to the altar call and you need to get re-saved all over again. Because we preach the message of holiness. But that holiness was void of the actual meaning of what holiness meant. Holiness is the holiness of God. And there will be some things that we need to work through on this earth. But just because you went and you screwed up or just because you went and you messed up doesn't mean that Jesus is going to come up to you and say, Hey, Orion, give me that salvation card. It's all over. You, you messed up. Hey, Joyce. Give me that salvation card. It's, it's all over. It's all over. It ain't about that. It isn't about that at all. Jesus did the finished work on the cross. There's nothing that will sink your salvation boat. Jesus has provided for you a security in him. Your behavior cannot crack the hull of the ship of salvation. 
Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath. We rest in him, not in our own works. His love binds us to himself. He loves us for no other reason than that he wants to. He makes us new in himself only because he loves us and has chosen freely not to be without us. The Apostle Paul wrote this. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come, the old has gone, and the new is here. And that's good news. God has made people, including you and me, his priority. I'm going to ask the worship team to come forward. He loves us, and we can't make him stop loving us. In that place of refuge, in the security of God's endless love for us, we are free to make God our priority. Not imposed upon us to make God our priority. We have the freedom to make God our priority. Therein lies the unshakable peace, joy, and the fullness of life we so crave. Therein lies our truest rest. You ever wonder how you can rest in this busy world? There lies our truest rest. See, the Sabbath, the day, in actuality, may have gone away for Christians. But the principle remains true. The individual needs rest. The individual needs reliance on something, an anchor, a place of refuge. That is why I believe with all conviction in my heart, that Jesus is the eternal Sabbath for everyone who would turn to him. He's that eternal resting point for everyone who would trust in him. I want us this morning to love like Jesus loved. To place people over programs and things because people are meaningful to Jesus. And if they're important to Jesus, then it should be important to us as well. Amen. Let's worship the Lord together.